This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. If you enjoy this NPR podcast, please consider subscribing. Our podcasts are available on all major podcasting platforms. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify, as well as the accessmedia.nz app. Hi, I'm Greg Watson and welcome to this week's show of Property Matters, where we talk all things property, or at least as much as we can squeeze into this short half-hour format. We'll start with a bit of regional news around a building in Palmerston North. We'll ask how much would you pay for a Headhunters gang pad. We'll talk a little bit about the market and then some rental matters at the moment, including the importance of keeping decent records. This first article by Janine Rankin on stuff.co.nz says sections ready for new housing in Palmerston North. So nestled between the Kelvin Grove Cemetery and the main trunk line railway line, Palmerston North's newest subdivision is already a home to a chorus of ducks and frogs. The first stage of the City Council's Tamakuku Terrace subdivision off James Line has been completed, ready now for up to 79 people and families to start building their homes. At its heart is a wetland area with a pedestrian bridge over the water, a critical part of the area's stormwater management system, with wildlife already making themselves at home. Rangatane, Kaumatua, Weramu Te Awiawi and Mayor Grant Smith on Monday led a walking tour around the new streets to bless the subdivision for those who will live there. As well as the subdivision itself, the streets have been given Māori names. Pokeri Kiri Krez, Te Hiruanui Drive, Tukiri Krez, Te Ara o Waihuri and Te Ara o Kawai, and the reserve is called Koa. Apologies if my pronunciation is a little bit off. Mayor Smith said the opening of the area came just one week short of two years since the first sod was turned to transform the land into a serviced area ready for building homes. He said it had taken commitment and perseverance from all of those who worked with the council to bring the sections to the market with all the disruptions and uncertainties of working through COVID-19 restrictions and issues. It was the first subdivision the council had been involved in for more than 30 years and was a response to the demand for housing in the city. As well as including regular sections for sale for conventional homes, the subdivision also includes smaller sections pepper-potted through the neighbourhood. The council had an agreement with Homes for People to help up to 50 families into affordable but not social housing. Smith said he was proud of the work done to prepare for building a neighbourhood that would develop the nature of the Whakarongo area and where residents would be able to feel well integrated and safe. So many of the sections have actually already sold and the new owners are expected to get title certificates by Christmas and start building as soon as consents were granted. The council would now work on gaining consent to develop the second 35-section stage of the subdivision. So you'll notice that has been going on there for a while as you drive out that way. And now it's uh, you might be able to go for a drive down those roads in particular to have a bit of a look around and see if the area is for you. This one's not directly housing related, but this article on stuff in the Manawatu Standard says Manawatu and surrounding areas to benefit from climate-friendly transport funding. Uh, how this relates to property is that if extra work is required, of course, people come into the area to do it, and that puts demand on housing. So they're saying that getting on a bike and live in or catching a bus in Palmerston North is set to become nicer thanks to successful applications for climate-friendly transport funding. 
Transport Minister Michael Wood announced on Sunday a range of projects selected to get a slice of the $350 million as part of the Transport Choices Package. The projects are funded from the Climate Emergency Response Fund, a focus on low and no emissions transport to reduce the need for cars. Livin is earmarked as one of 14 flagship projects with plans to create a cycle network throughout the town. They talk a little bit about Christchurch, where cyclists say the independence, health and the environment are all good reasons for cycling around Christchurch's flat streets. And Levin's population is expected to grow, and that's why it has been, I guess, chosen as one of these places. At the moment, Levin has very poor transport options outside of private cars, with the main street, which is also State Highway 1, having almost no room for cyclists. And those cyclists, as well as a significant population of senior citizens on foot and large scooters, also have to battle to get across the main trunk line. The network would aim to make it easier to cross those key transport routes. Palmerston North MP Tangi Utakiri said the city got funding for a better cycling network and improvements to the bus infrastructure. Bus improvements included better shelters, digital timetable displays and better lighting. would be nice if it also created a, uh, a bus route to Linton. Uh, but that's, I'm not sure that doesn't mention that there, that's just my thoughts. He says this is fantastic news for our community and is part of our work to upgrade New Zealand's transport infrastructure to make it safer, greener and more efficient now, for now and future generations to come. Tararua also got some funding to improve footpaths alongside busy roads. So that's what's happening there, a bit in the area. Projects should be built by the end of 2024. Well, now we go to the, some national news. Miriam Bell from Stuff.co.nz asks the question, Headhunters Christchurch pad, who would buy it and for how much? So home improvements to the Christchurch Headhunters gang pad contributed to its forfeiture, but they're unlikely to add much value to the property when it is resold. This week, the High Court ordered a forfeiture of the gang's 31 Vicarice Road Wigram property to the Crown under the Criminal Proceeds Act. The headhunters had owned the property since taking it over from the now-defunct Epitaph Riders motorbike gang in 2015 and had carried out renovations on it from 2016 to 2018. Crime-funded spending on the renovations, which included a new bathroom and kitchen, a well-equipped motorbike repair shop, a bar and lounge and new sleeping accommodation contributed to the police's case. But the renovations with which a quantity surveyor estimated to have cost about $180,000, had not boosted the value of the property much. CoreLogic put the property's current value at $530,000, and that's below the median of the suburb it's in and below the city's median. Wigram's median was $860,000, and while the Christchurch median was $745,000, CoreLogic's figures showed. So there has been a bit of an increase in the property value since it was last uh, built, but it's just interesting because the this court case was was an interesting one because they were able to seize the property and the gang pad, so that's really quite impressive indeed. Uh, the Auckland senior property lecturer Michael Rem said it was not uncommon for properties that have been the centre of violent fi- crime to become defaced or even burnt down in, in the absence of people being there. It hasn't happened in this case yet, but um, there can be a stigma attached to a former gang pad and there's no research in that particular space. But you could see a property investor or developer snapping it up for the section, bowling over the existing house and putting some townhouses on it, which would be a nice improvement. And uh, 
So that's uh, just a little bit of interesting news there, and that's again under the Proceeds of Crime Act. So well done to the police for, for figuring that one out. Just shuffling through my notes here. All right, so we're just going to look at the recent OCR hike that was 0.75. We talked a little bit about this on last week's show, but what does it really mean for house prices? And this is the question posed by Miriam Bell of stuff.co.nz. CoreLogic Head of Research Nick Goodall explains, has explained how house prices falling are making the market more affordable for first home buyers. And they will fall further after the Reserve Bank's record official cash rate hike, but the market is not expected to crash and burn. So the current OCR is at 4.25%. Mortgages have already increased steeply over the last year, with the typical one-year fixed rate rising from 2.9% last September to 6% now. So the Reserve Bank's move signals more pain for homeowners, and ANZ and Westpac have already acted, and ANZ's fixed loans now range from 6.54 on a one-year special through to 7.64 on a five-year standard rate. Some commentators say this will bury the already slow housing market, and there is a consensus that house prices will continue to fall. But economists don't think the market is likely to crash and burn, although there is little doubt that OCR increase will have an impact on home buyers' confidence. Real Estate Institute Chief Executive Jen Baird said buyers know the cost of borrowing will continue to increase, which means securing finance and debt servicing remain a barrier to purchasing ability. Our October sales data shows dampened sales activity and property spending a longer length of time on the market, and this is largely due to rising interest rates causing buyers to act with hesitancy and weighing up whether they will be able to afford in the medium term. CoreLogic Chief Property Economist Kelvin Davidson said high mortgage rates, a potential recession and rising unemployment are a bad combination for property. Higher unemployment due to rising labour force as envisaged by the Reserve Bank rather than outright job losses is the less bad situation, he says. It's not great for prospective new buyers if they can't find a job, but if existing homeowners aren't losing their jobs, it means they should mostly be able to keep servicing their debts and avoiding mortgagee sales. But an OCR heading towards 5.5% implies further upward pressure on mortgage rates and typically, at a typical high equity one-year fixed rate could top 7% shortly and potentially reach 7.5% or more. A potential future rate of 7% would see, would see a change of almost $12,000 on a $500,000 loan. That's um, repayments per year. It will also limit the pool of new borrowers, meaning a big adjustment for existing borrowers rolling off those previously low fixed rates and points to another quiet year of sales next year. Davidson said prices have further to fall too and are likely to be down 20% from last year's peak by the end of next year and that would still leave them 15 to 20% above pre-COVID levels. And certainly here in the Manawatu we're still quite a way above uh, those pre-COVID levels even though um, some of the drops seem quite harsh. So here's an interesting article that I found from Jonathan Killick on Stuff Business. It says, the highs and lows of a mortgage. Does owning a home make you happy? So it's an interesting question. There's so much uh, the so-called Kiwi dream. But does the Kiwi dream make owning your home, sorry, owning your home make you happy? A new survey shows homeowners are more likely to say they're happy at 80, sorry, at at 49% of correspondents. However, data also revealed that Kiwis are feeling nervous about the housing market with 83% saying they had no plans to build, buy or sell. The exception is investment property owners with 21% saying they plan to sell in the next year in response to rising interest rates. 
More than 6,500 people from around the country responded to Stuff's latest Now Next local survey across a week in November. The data was weighted for gender, age and region to reflect nationally representative samples. Some pretty smart people uh, must do that, that's for sure. So rising interest rates could be about to make life more difficult. Homeowners with a mortgage spend on average 37% of their income on payments and nearly a third of survey respondents already find their payments unaffordable. That's, uh, that's scary. It comes as falling house prices, tough lending conditions and at rising interest rates have potential borrowers nervous. Mortgage broker Stuart Wills said mortgages had become enemy number one. He'd been having more conversation with clients about paying them off faster and even switching banks for a better deal. Wills said with the speed of interest rate rises have caught homeowners off guard and he was surprised banks had not offered mortgage holidays like they did during the pandemic. This would enable someone to pay off their credit card or car loan, say, over the next 12 months so they could afford the higher repayments. That would be sensible. The stuff now next local survey also showed that on the other side of the property fence there is also a strong relationship between the prospect of not being able to afford your home and feeling unhappy. 46% of people in the situation say they're unhappy against the average population of 25%. But the falling house prices are viewed with optimism by younger generations but are causing anxiety among 35 to 44-year-olds and older generations remain stoic. Mortgage broker Andrew Malcolm had observed that young buyers seem to be caught up in FOOP, which is the fear of overpaying, while prices were going down but warned against waiting too long. Timing the market is a fool's game, time in the market is way more important. It's perfectly natural to think that you can wait for the bottom, but with inflation there might be a plateau that isn't easily recognisable or might never come. Malcolm said rising interest rates would push rents and therefore house prices, meaning buyers stood to gain by buying now since they might not be able to borrow as much in the future and in the meantime miss out on the growth in equity. Sure enough, Stuff Survey found that the third of property investors had recently put up their rents. The main reason given was costs, with 46% saying their mortgage had gone up, 32% said the cost of living meant they needed more money, 12% said they needed to fund work on the property, 13% blamed increases to rateable values, another 13% said they had to pay for insulation. So only 3% said it was because they hadn't put the rent up for a long time. Serena Gibbon of the Auckland Property Investors Association said it wasn't surprising that landlords had put rent up, but she cautioned them. She says, I'd remind landlords to benchmark their rents against the market, not their expenditures. Time and time again, we see the tribunal striking down rents that are substantially above market and being generally unmoved by the increase in landlord costs. So I think what's really important at the moment, if you're a landlord, is to make sure you're getting as much rent as possible within the market, and that's the key thing. This article by Susan Edmonds from stuff.co.nz says, property investors ready to have some fun and in inverted commas, hunting discounts and banking strong yields. So it gives the, uh, the view of um, the economist Tony Alexander said his recent survey of real estate agents showed investors running for the hills since last week's official cash rate announcement and the Reserve Bank warnings of recession. But experienced investors say they're still seeing opportunities and that could increase over the coming year. Uh, for example, Wellington-based investor in this article, Steve Goody, said his, he'd change his strategy in line with the softer housing market and rising interest rates. I've stopped purchasing stuff to renovate and sell straight away. That strategy is a bit old and deflated. I'm buying more new build stuff at the moment because I can. And as you may recall, the government has made it easier 
for investors to buy if they're building new properties. So he says that in the that we are now past the point that we can expect new builds to go up in value between buying them and settling, because of course that's what was happening. But now it's possible that in the middle of next year we could be buy, uh, buying better deals than we're buying now. That's an important tipping point. So that was certainly one of the the positives there with buying a property was getting that immediate equity uh, if it was a new build. We'll now move on to some uh, landlord-related news. And for this, I'm just going to have a look on uh, my phone here as this was just hot off the press on the Good Returns uh, Returns website. It says, Cash is king for underground landlords. Landlords taking rent in cash and not declaring it as income is becoming a growing problem. This article by Sally Lindsay. In most cases, tenants coughing up cash for their rental don't have a tenancy agreement or pay a bond, leaving no official record of the tenancy, leaving to problems if there is a dispute. New Zealand Property Investors Federation President Peter Lewis has come up against the issue when he's been called in by the Citizens Advice Bureau to help with thorny tenancies inquiries and believes that it's only going to become a bigger issue with tax payments under the new tax laws looming. He often finds landlords, and particularly those receiving some kind of benefit, are renting out part of their property or another property for cash, and that leaves the tenants in an invidious position. If there is an issue between a tenant and the landlord, and it is suggested that the tenancy tribunal might be the appropriate place to settle the dispute, the tenant often refuses, saying the landlord wouldn't like it or they don't want to lose their home. Lewis says the only way underground tenancies come to light is if there is a bond paid, but there is no legal requirement for a landlord to request a bond, although most do. However, not every landlord is conducting their tenancy in the right way. He says even if bonds were made mandatory, it wouldn't solve the problem because there will always be rogue landlords. He believes more landlords will take rent in cash to avoid paying the new tax introduced when government acts the ability of landlords to use mortgage interest repayments as a deduction against rental income. Legitimate landlords start paying for it in next year's tax returns. It is going to mean landlords paying thousands of dollars extra in tax every year over the next four years as the new rules are phased in. Some landlords will be resistant and find ways around it, including not declaring rent payments to the IRD, which over time will dilute the amount of tax the government says it will collect under the new rule plus the extension of the Brightline test to 10 years. Now this is all his opinion. I won't say whether I necessarily agree or not, but we'll just carry on with this for a moment. So Lewis says many landlords see the only way around the tax dilemma is to charge a nas- change to a national-led government as it has promised and acts the tax deduction rules. It might also stop a burgeoning of landlords taking rent in cash and avoiding a rash of underground tenancies. So where do you stand on this if you are taking cash from a tenant? Well, MB says it's important for landlords and tenants to keep accurate records about the tenancy. Landlords must keep rent and bond records for seven years after the tax year to which they relate. Keeping records can help you clear up any issues, either during or at the end of a tenancy. Records can include the tenancy agreement and any variations or renewals of it, property inspection reports, rent, receipts and records, water bills, invoices or records for any work carried out on the property such as maintenance or cleaning, copies of letters or emails sent to or received from the other person. So if you're not doing this as a landlord, you could get in trouble. MB says landlords should record details of any communication with the other person. For example, make a diary note when the rent is paid or received or repairs or maintenance are discussed. 
Tenants should keep their own records for the rent they've paid, even if it is cash. Bank statements are one way to do this, but it's also good to keep a rent summary spreadsheet. If the tenant pays rent with cash, the rent book is usually their receipt. A tenant should keep the rent book or other records for a reasonable time after the tenancy ends, said MB. So let's have a look at rent receipts, and this comes from tenancy law. So landlord must give a written receipt for rent when there is no other record available for the tenant. For example, if a tenant pays in cash, receipts must be given immediately if it's paid in cash or within 72 hours if it's not paid in cash. A receipt is not legally required when the rent is paid from a tenant's bank account by automatic payment into landlord's account if the account is only used for the tenancy and any of the landlord's other tenancies. But MB says it's a good idea to give a receipt for all payments even if it's not required by law. Rent receipts should include the following information, the address of the rented property, the amount of money received and what it's for, the period the rent covers, the day the rent was paid, the name of the person who paid the rent and the signature of the landlord of the person who received the rent. And a statement of rent, the landlord must give a written statement of rent if the tenant asks for it in writing and the statement must cover the period the tenants ask for. So there are some fines involved with uh, not keeping good paperwork. Just be aware of that. The tenants can demand to see that paperwork or to ask if you've got it as part of a tenancy tribunal case. Here's another article relating to tenants. This can go into the bad tenants, bad landlords part of the show. This by Amy Rideout from Stuff. Co.nz Lifestyle says house vandalised with paint after tenants overstay their term. Imagine this the night after the tenants moved out, landlord discovered her rental property had been vandalised with paint. The landlord was awarded $3,304 after a tenancy tribunal hearing where she claimed compensation for extensive damage, abandoned items, and tenants who overstayed their agreed tenancy. At the October hearing, adjudicator Michael Brennan heard that Justine Amy Murdoch's tenancy on Stokes Derby Street was meant to end by mutual agreement on June 29th. However, the home remained occupied until July 1st. A lack of communication from the tenant left the landlord unsure of their intentions and concerned, Brennan said. Speaking on Murdoch's behalf at the hearing, her partner Cameron Smith said they had needed longer to move out. However, the adjudicator did not accept this given the state in which the tenants left the house. I do not see evidence of the anticipated arrears that were flagged by the uh, sorry anticipated repairs that were flagged by the landlord as required when the parties mutually agreed on 29th of June 2022 as the end date. The failure to vacate was intentional, the adjudicator said. He awarded compensation for extensive damage at the property as well as the removal of rubbish and abandoned items on the property, including a caravan. The night after the tenants vacated the home, there was a deliberate paint attack on the property, the ruling said. A neighbour told the landlord that Smith was the culprit, but a police report gave conflicting information and Smith claimed he was with his partner and child that night. The lack of subsequent police action reflects the difficulty in proving Mr Smith was the vandal, even to the civil standard, Brennan noted, adding that the neighbour had not been questioned as part of tribunal proceedings. And that's a lesson uh, that we can learn, because that meant that the landlord was unable to claim the damage by the tribunal, but they were able to recoup costs via their insurer, Brennan noted. So if there is a crime that's been witnessed, um, you can call a witness um, into tenancy tribunal. The landlord was granted name suppression but awarded $3,304, $2,120, which came from the tenant's bond. So the just to recap, the witness saw the partner of the tenant go in and 
splash paint around the house. Uh, however, um, there were no um, proceedings officially by the police, but you could still call the witness who saw him go in and do that uh, into tenancy tribunal, in which case it would have been made to pay for that also. Finally, uh, this sort of article is the sort that really scares me. It's by Jonathan Killick of stuff.co.nz. One third of Kiwi renters living with gross mould in their home. So according to a new survey, a third of Kiwi renters are living with mould in their home. It's worse in the main cities with 39% of Aucklanders and 42% of Wellingtonians saying they struggle with the sickening spores. Now, more than 6,500 people from the country responded to the Stuff Now Next survey, which ran for a week in November, and the data was weighted to reflect nationally representative samples for gender, age and region. So it was the same uh, one that we were talking about earlier in the show. Of the 35% who said they had at least some mould, 8% they had patches of it growing in their home. Prolonged exposure to mould can cause people with asthma or allergies to suffer more severe symptoms, and extreme cases can make it harder to breathe. Renters are trying everything to rid their home of mould. The survey showed around 70% air out their house after using cleaning agents like bleach, 61% have to wipe down their walls, 30% have a dehumidifier, and 13% of tenants have installed a home ventilation system. Angela Maynard of the Tenants Protection Association says she wasn't one bit surprised by the figures. There are a lot of old houses out there that haven't been renovated to healthy home standards yet. She said that while healthy home standards were a requirement for new tenancies, landlords had had their deadline extended to 2025 to bring houses with existing tenants up to standard. It's not all the landlord's fault, Maynard said. Much of New Zealand's housing stock had been built with the rear of the housing facing the north side, which limited sun exposure, modelled on the northern hemisphere. However, patches of mould should not be present in houses in a well-maintained home and were usually caused by an unseen leak, she says. A landlord must ensure a house is free of mould when it is tenanted, but it is also the tenant's responsibility to clean up mould if it appears and prevent it from spreading. Maynard said tenants should alert their landlord of mould and keep a record of what they had done to clean it. They could issue their landlord with a 14-day notice to fix the issue if that didn't work, apply to tenancy tribunal. Maynard said she had a client who was moving cities and found a rental online before she moved. The pictures looked great, but when she arrived, it was damp and mouldy and the carpet squelched when she walked on it. That sounds disgusting. She went to tenant tribunal and terminated the tenancy. She said that if a house had weeping windows, tenants needed a dehumidifier, but often they were reluctant to use them because of the cost of power. And just in other news and stuff survey, it revealed that a lot of renters are doing it tough. They spend an average of 41% of their income on rent, and 39% of the people say the rent is unaffordable. Renters in their 30s and 40s with children over five are the most likely to be having a hard time. One in three renters say their rent has gone up in the last six months, and of those who have seen their rent change, 40% indicate their rent has gone up by 10% or more. Just by way of reminder, they have, on average, the median rents have gone up 10% in Manawatu, in particular Palmerston North. So you've been listening to Property Matters here on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, Te Reo Irarangi o Ngā Tangata o Manawatu. I'm Greg Watson and you can find this show on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, npr.nz or where all good podcasts are found, just search for Greg Watson and Property Matters. Until next week, have a great week.
If you're enjoying this podcast in Manawatu, you could make your very own, just like this one. NPR exists to help people like you tell your story or share your passion on air and online. Check out npr.nz for more information. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.npr.nz forward slash donate.